You're listening to the RBN Energy Blogcast. This is an audio version of RBN's Daily Energy Blog, which is a fun and informative daily commentary on oil, gas, NGL, and renewable markets. Each morning, we cover commodity fundamentals and industry changes to keep you informed of developing trends across the energy landscape. Monday, January 9th, 2023. When the levy breaks, why U.S. natural gas liquids production is surging. Published by Paige Hambrick. Since the advent of the shale revolution way back in 2008, U.S. production of natural gas liquids from gas processing has grown pretty much nonstop, from an annual average of 1.8 million barrels per day 15 years ago to 5.9 million barrels per day in 2022, a 9% compound annual growth rate. Today, NGL production exceeds 6.1 million barrels per day and that number might be even higher if the glut of supply wasn't depressing prices and discouraging the recovery of a lot of ethane. All that production has major implications for domestic pricing, upstream economics, midstream infrastructure, and downstream consumers like petrochemicals, not to mention international markets, which now receive roughly 40% of U.S. output. In today's RBN blog, we examine what's causing NGL production to continually increase. To understand what's going on with U.S. production of the mixed stream of natural gas liquids collectively known as NGLs, ethane, propane, butane, isobutane, and pentanes plus, it's important to recognize the relationship between NGLs and the production of crude oil and natural gas. After all, they all come from the same holes in the ground in hydrocarbon-rich areas like the Permian, Bakken, and Eagleford. Because of their common origin, RBN refers to the three commodity streams, crude, gas, and NGLs, as the drilled at hydrocarbons. These days, About 80% of drilling in the U.S. is primarily directed at crude oil production, which makes sense because, generally speaking, crude is the most valuable of the drill bit hydrocarbons on a per BTU's basis. Crude doesn't emerge from shale plays on its own, of course, instead, it comes out of the ground mixed with what's typically referred to as associated gas, a gurgling combination of methane, or natural gas, mixed NGLs and various impurities. The composition of this oil and that gas NGL stew varies widely, not only between shale basins but within each basin and from well to well, and even within each well over time. The differences in drill bit hydrocarbon composition between oil-focused basins, within basins and from well to well is easy to wrap your head around, depending on location, there will be variations in rock and hydrocarbon content within that rock. As for the changes in composition over time at individual oil-focused wells in key shale basins, they tend to result from an increasing gas-to-oil ratio, known as the GOR and calculated as 1,000 cubic feet of gas per barrel of oil. In other words, the output of individual wells and entire shale basins tend to become gassier from year to year. As we discussed in the blog, Don't Stop Me Now, the main reason for rising GORs is that gas-type curves generally tend to be shallower, meaning they decline less quickly than oil-type curves. Also, additional natural gas and NGLs tend to be captured as gathering and processing infrastructure is built out and restrictions on flaring tighten. Rising GORs help to explain 1. Why an increasing share of U.S. natural gas production is coming from oil-focused shale basins, the Permian being a prime example, and 2. Why U.S. crude oil production has stalled at just over 12 million barrels per day but natural gas and NGL production continue to grow. They also help to explain why, even as demand for natural gas for LNG exports is rising, that the Haynesville is the only place where gas-directed drilling is increasing significantly with much smaller gains in the gassier parts of the Rockies and Eagleford. Appalachia, once the star of domestic gas production growth, remains mired in pipeline purgatory. As you would expect, the trajectory of GORs differs from basin to basin, 
depending on a number of factors such as the degree of recent drilling activity again, new wells tend to be oilier than older ones, and where ENPs are choosing to drill within the basin. The average GOR in the U.S. had been steadily declining, primarily as a result of decreased gas production from legacy fields. The ratio spiked in 2020 when crude prices crashed and a lot of primarily crude production wells were shut in, but has since restabilized at about 9.4. The major unconventional crude oil basins have notably different trends. Only the Niobrara has seen a decreasing GOR from 11.0 to 7.7 over the past five years, while the GOR has risen from 14.5 to 16.0 in the Anadarko, 1.6 to 2.7 in the Bakken, 5.1 to 6.0 in the Eagleford and 3.4 to 3.8 in the all-important Permian. That increase of 0.4 in the Permian's GOR may not sound all that profound, until you consider that the basin now produces 5.7 million barrels per day of crude and that the higher GOR translates to an increase of more than 2 BCF per day of gross gas, an enormous volume to be sure. That's one reason why the Permian continues to require additional gas takeaway capacity even as it has plenty of crude pipeline capacity. In fact, Pioneer Natural Resources CEO Scott Sheffield made headlines last Thursday when he said, among other things, that the GORs in the entire Permian Basin will continue to go up. We're seeing that. You'll see the percent oil drop for all those companies, most likely below 50% over the next 10 years. And the gas itself will get up to about 30 BCF per day. We're going to need a new gas pipeline at least about every 18 months to two years going forward. Production in the Permian, like in several other oil-focused shale plays, has another characteristic particularly pertinent to today's blog topic, namely, the associated gas produced there is richly saturated with NGLs. NGL content in associated gas is often measured in gallons per thousand cubic feet of gas, or GPM. Depending on the hydrocarbon mix of the basin in question, each thousand cubic feet of associated gas may have anywhere from a couple to several GPM of mixed NGLs entrained within it. The label GPM is generally applied to wellhead gas, in other words, how many gallons are in a thousand cubic feet when it comes out of the ground. However, wellhead GPMs are highly variable and not widely published so few know that figure for sure other than the producers. What is reported, and therefore what we can know is how much liquid is extracted by the time the resulting natural gas makes it through to the tailgate of the processing plant. That tailgate volume of liquids is less than the total volume of liquids, sometimes by a considerable amount, because some of the ethane is not recovered and is instead left in the gas stream, more on that in a moment. So when we refer to GPMs in this blog, know that we're discussing tailgate GPMs. The recovered GPM across the U.S. has been rising steadily since 2008, from 1.3 GPM back then, 2.3 GPM today. A rising GOR coupled with a rising GPM means that now, on average, for every barrel of crude oil produced in the U.S., 9.4 thousand cubic feet of gross gas is produced in 22 gallons of mixed NGLs, 9.4 times 2.3 equals 22, or about half a barrel of NGLs, 22 divided by 42. A major reason for the rising GPM is that new, highly efficient processing infrastructure has enabled a higher percentage of NGLs to be recovered from the gas stream. In an upcoming blog, we'll explore how today's highly efficient gas processing technologies enable a higher percentage of NGL recovery, GPMs vary considerably by region. Pad 3, or the Gulf Coast, home to the Permian and Eagleford, has experienced a steep rise in GPMs through the shale era and now has the highest GPM of any pad, edging out pad 2 with the Midwest, home of the Bakken, since the mid-2010s. There are at least another couple of other things to consider when you're looking at NGL production and GPMs. One is that, as we mentioned before, 
the GPM number only reflects the NGLs that are separated out by gas processing plants and does not include ethane that, for one reason or another, gets left in the residue natural gas stream. And the degree of recovery differs widely by region. For example, in Pad 5, for the West Coast, the recovered GPM is kept lower because none of the ethane is recovered, it's all left in the gas stream. On a similar note, in Pad 1, or the East Coast, the substantial increase in GPM starting in 2013 to 2014 was due to the startup of significant processing in the region, with the first ethane recovery there occurring in December 2013. Another quirk of all this liquids production that bears mentioning is that in shale plays like the Permian that have experienced a build-out of efficient new processing capacity, the average recovered barrel of mixed NGL production, known as Y-grade after it's been processed out of the gas stream, tends to contain a greater portion of lighter components like ethane and propane than heavies. On average since 2005, the proportion of ethane in the U.S. NGL mix has grown from 38% to 41% and propane share has grown from 29% to 31%, while the combined share of heavier purity products has declined from 33% to 28%. That's going to have an impact on the types and configurations of facilities upstream needed to handle the liquids as well as downstream markets and prices. And one more thing, as with crude oil and natural gas, as production of NGLs has ramped up during the shale era, surplus production has pushed its way into international markets to the point where the U.S. is now a leading exporter of crude, gas and NGLs. Just as noteworthy, while on average in 2022 the U.S. exported about 30% of the crude oil it produces, up from only 4% in 2014, and 20% of its natural gas, up from 6% in 2014, fully 40% of its produced NGLs are now exported, with a whopping 60% of propane production sent abroad, but whereas, prior to falling at the start of 2023, crude and gas prices were elevated last year due to a variety of reasons, including restrained supplies due to capital discipline and the war in Ukraine, the price rise in NGLs has seen more of a decline in comparison, with several key price ratios like the propane to crude ratio and ethane to gas, at Henry Hub or HH, ratio sinking very low indeed. The price of a weighted average basket of NGLs has fallen compared to the price of crude oil and natural gas. That means that the propane-to-crude ratio is down to around 40% lately while the ethane-to-gas ratio has recently been below 1 to 1 and only in the last week, risen back above that threshold. The difference for NGLs is that their production is impacted by the multiplicity of factors we noted before, rising GORs, rising GPMs, and a rising share of lighter NGLs among them, while the demand for NGLs from the pet chem sector and other consumers has grown only modestly, and has taken a hit as the outlook for the global economy has dampened. With NGL prices so low compared to oil and gas, weird things happen. Most notably, when the price of ethane falls below the price of natural gas on a BTU's equivalence, it incentivizes processors to reject their ethane, meaning that they leave it entrained in the natural gas stream to capture the higher value. So how long might the flood of NGLs persist? Well, there is little to make us think that the GOR, GPM and lighter barrel trends we described won't continue. And that suggests that, with U.S. demand for NGLs largely satiated, the incremental barrels will overflow into international markets like river water jumping its levee in a flood. When the Levee Breaks was written by Kansas Joe McCoy in Memphis Mini and was released as a 78 revolution per minute single in June 1929. Released at a time before Billboard began tracking blues records, it was said to have been a moderate hit on jukeboxes. The song is a country blues tune about the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927, which inundated 26,000 square miles of the Mississippi Delta, resulting in the deaths of hundreds of people, thousands of others lost their homes and businesses. 
Memphis Minnie was living with her family in Walls, Michigan, when the flood occurred. McCoy and Minnie recorded the song during their first recording session for Columbia Records in New York City in June 1929. It was released as a single in August 1929. Personnel on the record were Kansas Joe McCoy, vocals, rhythm guitar, and Memphis Minnie, lead guitar. Many other artists have recorded the song, the most well-known being Led Zeppelin, whose version appears as the fourth song on side two of their fourth album, Led Zeppelin IV, also known as the Runes album. Led Zeppelin IV has been certified 24x platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America. Recorded at Headley Grange in Hampshire, England during January 1971, when the Levy Breaks was mixed at Sunset Sound in Hollywood with Jimmy Page at the production helm in February 1971. It is worth noting that Page recorded Led Zeppelin drummer John Bonham's drums in a massive stone hall at Headley Grange, utilizing two additional mics down the hall for ambience while recording Bonham's drums. Bonham's two-bar intro to the song has been sampled many times by artists such as Eminem, Dr. Dre, Mike Oldfield, and Sophie B. Hawkins. Robert Plant and Alison Krauss performed the song live on their recent 2022 concert tour. Wilbur Kansas Joe McCoy died in January 1950, Memphis Minnie passed in August 1973, and John Bonham died in September 1980. Thanks for listening to the RBN Daily Energy Blogcast. For more information on energy market reports, maps, and consulting engagements, please visit us at rbnenergy.com. And thanks for rocking with us.